This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute and a professor of management. Just a reminder, we are live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. Tomorrow on Friday, March 8th, we have International Women's Day, and it's wonderful to think about the role of women both in society and in innovation. And the United Nations theme is Think Equal, Build Smart, Innovate for Change. And I think that's something that drives innovation in general. Some of the issues that we'll talk about today have to do with business model innovation. How do firms create new models of innovation through online marketplaces and so on, which have generated enormous value. But also we'll talk about innovation in the healthcare space. Uh, This is one of the largest domains in the economy today. About 28% of GDP is tied up in healthcare. And so we might think about what are the ways in which we might be able to innovate and improve quality or maintain quality by lowering cost. We have got a great lineup for the show today. First, I'll speak with Geraldine Bride, a longtime executive with a successful track record in transforming businesses. She's held leadership positions in companies including Avon, Campbell Soup, Godiva, and many more. We'll hear about her new innovative venture, Anytown USA, an online marketplace for U.S.-made products. On the second half of the show, I'll speak with the future of the, about the future of healthcare innovation with Dr. Robert Grayboys, a senior research fellow and healthcare scholar at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. So, uh, Geraldine, it's great, wonderful to have you here. Um, Geraldine has, uh, has an expertise in consumer goods industry, and uh, so welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here today. And you're a graduate of the Wharton School as well, so that's a great asset. Uh, we are delighted to have you here in the show to talk about innovation. Well, it all started at Wharton, that's for sure. So let me ask you, you know, in general, consumer product innovation is sort of every bit as risky, at least in my opinion, as technological innovation. A lot of people think about technology and, you know, R&D and the high risk involved. And I think it's also true in consumer goods. And with your work initially in Procter & Gamble and then in Avon and Campbell's Soup, you've clearly dealt with that. So how do you see the likelihood of improving success rates in innovation in consumer products? Yeah, well, you know, my whole career has been about figuring out what people want and giving it to them. And, you know, what I'm doing now is the latest iteration of that. But, you know, the tricky part is people don't often um, have the ability to tell you what they want. Mm -hmm. So you have to use a combination of data and intuition to get at it and then just listen, stand back and listen to them. And then, um, you know, have the right team that is able to pull together all of those different things and uh, come up with the solution. And, you know, it means having a diverse team so that you can get out there and and combine data and intuition together so that the big idea comes. If you just keep repeating, doing the same thing, keep line extending or whatever, um, you know, you just keep getting smaller and smaller ideas. That's my experience anyway. Very interesting. So let's hear more about Anytown USA. 
Yeah, so Anytown USA, uh, we launched it the end of June last year in 2018. It's an e-commerce platform, the first e-commerce platform that puts all American-made goods, all categories in one place so it's easy for people to shop, as we like to say, from head to toe and uh, your house from front door to back door all in one place easily. And really, you know, most Americans and, you know, a Boston Consulting Group study will tell you 80% of Americans would love to buy American-made products. They just can't find them anymore. Uh, when you're down to categories like apparel being only 3% of what's bought is made in America, you know, it's just hard to find. So the value proposition is uh, that people don't need to look at labels, that the products there are already made, uh, are, you, are guaranteed to be made in the U.S.? I would say um, the proposition is they don't have to hunt through stores. They don't have to hunt through um, multitudes of online sites because we've done that legwork for them. And, you know, yeah, to your point, there are a lot of people who will name their product American this or American that or whatever, and they're not made in the U.S. And so part of our legwork is, you know, we're traveling the country, we're going to trade shows, you know, big shows at Javits Center, Atlanta Convention Center, whatever. We're meeting the makers who are still making in the country, whether they're small and medium manufacturers or, or small crafters. And uh, so we're meeting the people. We have them certify that their products are made according to FTC guidelines. Uh, we have a two-step certification process. We make them label correctly. Is it 100% made in the U.S., in which case they can, in fact, label made in USA, or is it made with some imported materials? Um, but in either case, they have to be um, labeled correctly and they have to be um, made in um, the USA, meaning less substantial transformation of the um, mm -hmm. materials, wherever they come from, um, has to be in the U.S. So are you finding that customers, of course, customers coming to your um, online marketplace are self-selected, but uh, are you finding that they place a premium on that, or are they, do they want to get uh, goods made in the U.S. but at the same price point, in which case it becomes a bit more challenging? Yeah, so, you know, of course, that study that I'm quoting, 80% of people said they would buy at the same price point. Mm -hmm. um, at a 10% premium, the numbers went down to 70%. At a 20% premium, it went down to 60%. So price is a factor for people, you know, always. But what people are coming to us for, um, they certainly want the American-made goods. Three out of four people believe American goods are made with um, better quality, with more rigor, um, that they're not, you know, there isn't abuse of the workforce, um, things like that. And then, you know, it sort of splits. Uh, um, people over 40 are buying for, you know, to help the economy, to create jobs for patriotic reasons. And younger folks, millennials, um, cite reasons of sustainability, low-carbon footprint, things like that. And they would describe it more as buying local as opposed to made in U.S. So you have mm -hmm. to speak the right language to each group. How did you come up with this idea? Was it sort of market research or was it um, intuitively thinking about what customers might value? It, I would say it was two things. You know, when I worked at Avon, I saw the power of empowering um, individual small business people to... Uh, start small businesses and, you know, be successful and, you know, help their families in their communities, literally in small towns across the United States. 
And then when I was um, president of a rather large shoe company up in Boston, you know, it hit home when there was a, a big dock strike or slowdown out on the West Coast, and literally nothing could get into the country. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I knew that most shoes were made in Asia. We all knew that. But when you can't get your fall line into the country and you ask one of your suppliers how long it would take to make the product in the United States again, and they say 10 years because all the talent and everything is gone and the machines, etc., um, I kind of had a light bulb go on, and then I started doing the research and saw you know, the people wanted it, and then I figured out that it was a real, you know, one of the last big white spaces in retail. So it's a market opportunity as well. So uh, how, how do you measure stickiness in the site? People are coming to your site, um, you know, and what kinds, and you, of course, must be measuring traffic. Do you yeah. see certain items moving faster and or certain categories, and are there sort of suggestions of new categories? So, of course, we've only been live for about six months, so it's changed, you know, with the seasons, and... I would say the red thread through the whole thing has been people are buying everyday categories. They're not buying, um, you know, things like, you know, wall art. They're buying things that they use every day, like um, at the holidays, mm-hmm. people bought a lot of things like, you know, mittens and hats and um, accessories, the kind of gifts that everybody gives. But what they come to us for is um, they want it to be just a little bit different so they're not giving the same thing that everybody else is giving. Same thing like we sold a lot of um, Christmas decorations and things like that at the holidays. And, you know, we sold a lot of jewelry at Valentine's Day. So we're not any different than anyone else in the sense of what kinds of categories people shop. It's just that um, everything is the kinds of things that you, you really can't get in every store, on every street corner, every big box store, because these vendors are just pretty unique because they're not distributed on every street corner and every big box store. So are you generating um, new brands or are you taking, I mean, in the case of branded products, are you taking the subset that are produced in the U.S.? Yeah, they're all uh, produced in the U.S. And they're, like I said, small and medium manufacturers and crafters. And then what we do, actually, we also have um, access for national brands that still make in the U.S. So if you want a pair of New Balance sneakers, New Balance, you know, still makes 10% of their sneakers in the U.S., we mm-hmm. have a page called the Partner Page where we have over 33 brands, whether it's New Balance or Patagonia or Yeti Coolers or whatever you're looking for, and part of the lines of these companies still made in the U.S. And again, we've, um, we give you a link directly to the part of these companies' lines that are still made in the U.S. So, again, you don't have to go hunting for it. So if you want a cooler or a pair of sneakers, mm-hmm. anything from a national brand, we're trying to sort that for consumers as well. Very interesting. So what are the biggest uh, risks you see in this business or the things that you really would like to make sure you get right? Uh, definitely what we want to get right is the integrity and transparency. So from the very start, that was something we emphasized. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely we wanted to get the product assortment right, and it's very, very easy to you know, go very upscale with American-made products because there's a lot of beautiful handcrafted things and, and super well-done you know, woodwork and things like that, but you know, you don't buy those things very often, you don't need them very often, and they're, they're not very accessible price points. So 
Uh, we want to get the assortment right to be everyday products at um, accessible price points. And then, you know, it's up to us to meet the right sellers who have integrity, bring them on board, um, talk to them, and, and go through the two-step certification process and drive the traffic. So it's a, a win-win for the sellers and ourselves. So I actually, I have, of course, uh, been to your website, and I thought it was really interesting, you know, in terms of the kinds of products you have there. And they are very much everyday products. I thought that was really fascinating. So why did somebody not occupy this space before, or did somebody occupy it but did not do it right? Do you have any thoughts on that? There's a a few uh, sites out there that I would say... You know, of course, I would say did not do it right, but they they did it right in their own way, I suppose. Some of them have a political angle, so I would say that that's a much more narrow focus. Um, Some of them actually Mm -hmm. hold inventory, so that's going to limit how broad an assortment they can carry because they have to, you know, put out cash to hold inventory. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them only do 100% made-in-U.S. products, and that's going to be limiting as well. So it's like you can buy anything you want as long as it's a mug with an eagle on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we carry all three types that are uh, allowable and labelable by uh, the FTC. It's just we in- insist that people label the product appropriately along with the guidelines. And so we believe that we've got a really great assortment for people to shop, and we have the transparency of you know what the content is so that people can make their own decision. If you want to only buy 100% made in U.S., you know, you can shop the site that way. But if you, you know, want to buy your, something that's substantially transformed in the U.S., which is our whole site, but it has a little bit of imported material, that's fine, too. It, mm-hmm. We leave it up to the consumer to decide. So one of the big innovations that some of the retailers have done is really in the supply chain. Uh, in your case, um, and, and I think that requires finding suppliers who are, more compatible. I think you're already doing that, but is the is the scale of that complicated or is it kind of uh, easy to manage? Because I think with clothing, there's a vast number of suppliers. Right. So we are not having trouble finding suppliers. It's a lot of legwork, like I said, but we are, you know, meeting them and finding them and signing them up at a good clip. And some folks who traditionally sold through wholesale were not originally set up to do drop shipping to individual consumers. Mm-hmm. I would say over the two years we've been working the idea, more and more people are um, able to do drop shipping. And mm-hmm. what we've recently hooked up to is um, a system called ShipStation that allows people to warehouse their product and um, ship it out more simply. So it, it enabled us to reach a whole other group of, of, um, of vendors. So the more you can do to make it easy for folks, because a lot of these people are um, smaller operations, and you just want to take more and more work off of them so that they're more successful mm-hmm. and enable them to come on board. So, Geraldine, I think that's a really interesting point you made, identifying suppliers and and trying to find those who are not, you know, already um, fully occupied but have the kind of attributes uh, you are thinking about. Um, have you run into any issues of qualifying them for quality and so on um, to ensure that, you know, since you're early in your business, that they actually uh, enhance your your online marketplace? I wouldn't say quality because we're going to high-quality shows where you have to – 
you know, on the national shows, you have to put up, you know, approaching $40,000 just to attend. So, so you're pre-screening, you're pre-screening them from that's that. That's right. Just that is a pre-screen right there. I have um, someone who's been a merchant, mm-hmm. a lead merchant for like, you know, 30 plus years doing the screening so she knows her stuff. Um, it's more that some folks we met early on, um, you know, had some of their production in the U.S. and some of their production overseas, and if they coded the product wrong, there was a potential that we could get the wrong stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we had to sort that early on, and we did. And then a couple of people that we met in the very beginning uh, who were making things like cell phone cases and stuff like that in the U.S., then called us up and said, you know what, I've shifted my production, and so they were no longer a valid vendor for us because they moved overseas. So it's, it's more like that. But I think because we're meeting people individually and have our screening process and things like that, we have enough um, checks on it at the moment. And and it looks like uh, you're getting pretty close to the price point of um, other retailers who do uh, or marketplaces that source from overseas. You know why? It's because we're giving these folks a, a, a retail margin. So mm-hmm. they have some room there uh, that they can price the things appropriately. Very interesting. So tell us more about how your prior experience kind of played into this. I think you've got, you already talked a bit about your work with Clarks, but also other places. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Wharton was a really great start for me because I, I went straight out of Wharton to Procter & Gamble, which is, you know, that's where I got my informal MBA in terms mm-hmm. of business and really wonderful training in branding and how do you understand the consumer and I worked in the beauty category there, and I worked in the beauty category again later at Avon. And, um, you know, just the the constant lesson is how do you listen to consumers and understand what they want? And then also um, I did retail at Godiva mm-hmm. and, and in a sense at Avon. And there you're, you're listening to uh, the customer because you're selling. You're con- it's constantly all about selling. And then mm-hmm. at Avon in particular, it's about recruiting, right? Because you have to put a proposition on the table that, um, you know, at Avon, I was recruiting 900,000 new Avon representatives a year, every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that's what we're doing here we, when we are recruiting sellers oh, to go yes. out and, you know, recruit an army of sellers. So, um, you know, at Avon every year, we recruited the equivalent or more of the U.S. Army, uh, mm-hmm. actually the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. So all of those skills, they all play, you know, and come together. And, you know, the only skill I'm not using right now is global uh, Mm -hmm. in this business. But eventually, you know, the next market we want to go to is to sell to China, to China, Mm -hmm. because the next group of consumers who are very interested in American-made products, which is ironic, is the Chinese market because because of the quality. So um, we're going to go there next. Very interesting. So, So this value proposition could have um, other other markets and that makes a lot of sense to me so you know there's a there's a philosophy out there about about how you identify new customer preferences and um, I think there's you know the standard view was market research and those kinds of things but I think the great success of Apple kind of uh, suggested I mean the famous line from Steve Jobs that you need to understand unmet needs of customers do you want to comment on that, how you you know think about new business models? Yeah, I think you have to get 
below what people, like I said before, what they tell you to what they need. And, you know, in this particular case, one of the, you know, somebody needs a, a shirt, right? Mm-hmm. But the unmet need that people have, whether it's on the seller side or the buyer side, is this need that people have right now for community. Mm-hmm. So when so no one's going to tell you that when they're buying a shirt they're going to tell you they need you know what size what color etc what style but right. the, the reason part of the reason people sell on our site or buy on our site is the buyers like knowing where the product is coming from and who's standing mm-hmm. behind it yes. and what the authentic story is and the sellers like the idea of um, people respecting what they're doing now. Everybody's in, you know, the sellers are in it for the money and the buyers need a good price. So those are, you know, cost of entry. But then you get down to the deeper sort of um, emotional need and, and it's about community. And, mm-hmm. and then the, the last piece of the puzzle is sort of what I would describe as endless assortment, endless opportunities of choices. And that's what you get with a marketplace versus um, um, a sort of direct B2C site. It's an mm-hmm. endless assortment of products because we're connecting with, you know, right now hundreds of sellers, but eventually, you know, thousands. So do you find that the, one of the issues is the velocity of change in the marketplace today and the velocity of change of not just preferences, but also the underlying technology of online marketplaces? Would you like to comment on the second part, the online technology and how you know, as as a person coming in, as a player coming in, how to stay ahead of that? Uh, well, it, it's certainly, you know, something that is a challenge. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, when we were putting the site up, we had to decide, you know, for example, where were we going to provide the service to our sellers of collecting state income taxes, uh, sales taxes mm-hmm. for the seller or not. Now, that's very complicated and expensive, and it was a complicated thing, and we did hit a, a V in the road about, you know, the site development. Mm-hmm. And we had to make a guess because, you know, for years, Internet companies haven't had to, right? Right. And, um, and we, again, had to sort of read the tea leaves on that one, and there was just enough out there that looked like it was coming our way, and we chose to uh, code the, delay our launch a couple months, code the site to be able to do that and provide the service. And then all of a sudden, you know, the ruling came down on the Supreme Court, the waiver case in May. And, you know, now all the states are, are looking for that sales tax revenue to be uh, collected by online companies, whether you have that's right. or yeah. not. <laughs> right, right. And so so, that's an example, right, about the yes. sudden rate of change. And it's nothing that's to right. do with technology. It's regulation. It was regulation, but ultimately um, regulation that has to be dealt with by technology because, you know, the complexity of the sales tax system in the United States, um, you know, you can't do that by hand with a pencil and a calculator. That requires technology to administer. And so... Um, and so, therefore, that's like a, a a really good example of how technology has to keep up with regulation, I suppose. But, mm-hmm. yes. um, you know, I'm sure there will be more examples just like that. So, you know, I, I, it's wonderful that you serve on some boards uh, of companies, including Haynes and 1-800-Flowers.com. What are some of the things you run into looking at companies? I mean, you're a CEO yourself, looking at 
the company from a board's point of view that might be very interesting to our listeners? Well, I love the board work. Um, I loved it when I was, you know, in a corporate role because the the great part when I was in a corporate role at my last corporate stop was, you know, first of all, it lets you think about somebody else's problems, mm-hmm. but it gives you benchmarks, right, mm-hmm. for, you know, health care costs and uh, comp and things like that. So, so that's great. Um, it also gave me, when I was president at Clark, it, it gave me a reminder of what is the board looking for when I was presenting and how do you um, talk to them right. more effectively. So it was great when I was in that role. When I'm in this role now, obviously, you know, the Haynes is such a global company. It keeps my, um, it, it leverages my experience in global, right. which was pretty extensive, and it keeps my hand in on the global side. Um, and, you know, one of the things I enjoy in particular is in two of the boards I've been on, I've been on the nominating and governing committee and um, chair of one of them. And there you can have an impact on, you know, what kinds of people get hired onto the board or even a CEO, and you can make sure that, you know, the slate is diverse and things like that, mm-hmm. for, you know, not just reasons of diversity, but to, to make the company a better, more effective company. So, you know, there's a general view that our MBAs think about, and that is that disruption comes from the outside, you know, that companies cannot sustain innovation on the inside, uh, when you're on the board of some of these companies, how do you kind of advise them so that they can uh, – first of all, that's debatable, right? I mean, uh, the rate of innovation by, by incumbents may well be uh, very much equal to the task. Any thoughts on that about external versus internal innovation? I think disruption comes from disruptors. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds, you know, maybe too easy, but if if you have a company that – you know, is like a utility and nobody wants to rock the boat and that's your culture, you could even bring in an, an outside person and they will, um, you know, reject that person like a bad kidney and it mm-hmm. won't matter. So if you want disruption and you build a culture of disruption and you know you have to reinvent yourself every couple of years, you can get it internally but if you have built your culture to never rock the boat and it's some kind of country club where mm-hmm. everybody's just marking time to retirement, that's what you're going to get. And, you know, there's certainly, I'm sure, some industries where that's possible, but, you know, you tell me what they are. I mean, I spent 20 years in the food industry where, you know, you could sort of, you know, line extend and raise prices every three years and, you know, do that. And that hasn't been the case now for gee, I guess at least 10 years, it's been a really tough industry, you know. Right. And now, I'm sure you've seen the recent craft news where, you know, even everyone's going, this whole 3G thing has run its course, which a lot of us knew it would, and it was just a matter of seeing, you know, when that day was going to come, and now they're going to have to go back to innovation. Well, that's one of the one of the interesting debates, you know, that uh, the the investment community wants continuity and stability, and uh, therefore, uh, innovation has to be done on the inside, right? And the 3G example is very good, that they came in and that was supposed to be the new model. But it turned out that, uh, in fact, many insiders were telling me also, as I was following that, they were telling me also that, you know, there's, there, if you cut costs too much, you will not be able to innovate. And sure enough, with Heinz, that's exactly what happened, right? Sure, sure. 
Yeah, I, I do remember. I'm old enough to remember being at General Foods back in the day when they, you know, the joke was there was a whole building full of people studying the blueberry. I'm sure that it wasn't exactly like that, but that probably was innovation that was going nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't, you know, that was unproductive. But you can't have no innovation. You can't have no long-term thinking, especially now. I mean, millennials are rejecting all the old food brands, you know, out of hand, it's, you have to innovate or, you know, you're going to be like Bosco or some of these old brands that, you know, are just in a museum. That's a great point. I think we see that and I see that on campus all the time. Uh, You know, one fortunate thing about academia is you see, you teach people in their 20s and sometimes in their late teens and in the case of undergrads. And I think the level of brand loyalty has really reduced it's much more around the latest value proposition. Well, and it's almost m- more like, um, you know, this whole idea of my, you know, not my father's, you know, insert name of brand, you know, on steroids. Mm-hmm. And they, there's, and I think that's because of the suspicion of, uh, you know, big food mm-hmm. in the sense of, you know, environment and uh, ingredients and all of that. It's not just the badge value. It's this, you know, questioning what's in it, etc. Jerilyn, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.